0: exciting to be a part of God's program isn't it to um, know that uh, he is accomplishing his purposes in us through us with us uh, seeing what just transpired here uh, on the platform with Tim and Josh um, and you know all the things that you heard uh, is really a uh, ongoing evidence of the work of God through Sun Valley Church uh, for His glory and for the good of us, His people, and the Mixtec people. And so it is such a, a wonderful thing to be participants in this. I hope you're uh, thrilled by it. I uh, <clears throat> lost my iPad someplace. I know that, all right, it's gotta be someplace. Um, I do not know where it's at, hence the Dark Ages. Um, But others do this, so we'll see. Uh, If I fumble around and I've already done it once today, I drop this stack and you know, where's it go? So, (laughs) Lord help me, Lord help you. Um, (laughs) We're in, Mark chapter 9, we've crossed the midway point here uh, in this wonderful gospel, the gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it with me to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. This is an amazing passage. It's unique in all of scripture. Uh, It is unique for a purpose, and I'm... My goal is to help you see that purpose, not just because of its uniqueness, because of its point, its, its uh, focus. In this, in this text, we're going to see the, the identity of Jesus Christ, without a shadow of a doubt, confirmed. And then we're going to see how the confirmation of his identity, how it affects you and me today. And believe me, if you actually truly understand the true identity of Jesus Christ, nothing is ever the same in your life. And I want you to experience that today. I want you to know for sure, like the apostles did, who witnessed this thing firsthand. Let me read it for you. You follow along, take notes if you will, and then I'll have a few words to say about it There appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them all to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. And so our first point this morning is that this event that I just read for you is Jesus' true identity confirmed. Can you come away from this story and have any other conclusion (laughs) that his identity has been utterly confirmed? On top of all the things that Mark referred to, recorded in this gospel, to confirm the true identity of Christ, this tops them all. And it's no coincidence that this is the first thing on the second half of this great book. So Mark's focus in the first half of his book, as you recall, has been to establish this thing, this identity crisis that the world struggles with knowing who Jesus is. Some say he's a great man, some say he's a prophet, some say he's a great teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Mark says, no, no, no. There's only one answer that's acceptable. The answer must be the same as Peter's answer in verse 29 of chapter 8. He is the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God. What a, what a presentation of Jesus' identity. Mark wants his readers, us, to be fully convinced of his argument that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah, the Son of God from heaven, come to earth to live with us, to save us from our sins. In chapter 8, 29, Mark, of course, records Peter's famous confession, which is the high point, the centerpiece of Mark's gospel, to which, of course, Peter replied to Jesus' question, you are the Christ. And so everything in the first half of the book leads up to this confession. It is the pinnacle of the book. And then from there, the rest of the book flows out of that confession. That's how to understand this gospel. So if your conclusion at this point in your reading and study of this Gospel of Mark, if your conclusion is the same as Peter's, that Jesus is God, he is the Christ, then Mark has accomplished his task and you are saved. That's the purpose here of this book. And what we see here in this story, in chapter nine that I just read you, the first thing off the top of your head is that he's obviously God in the flesh. This kind of thing doesn't happen to men. This is something that only God can pull off. It is a a divine event. And like, like I said earlier, if there's anything recorded in scripture that confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's the transfiguration. Jesus must be, in fact, God in the flesh. What Peter confessed six days prior to this event was now affirmed by this transfiguration. That was the primary intent of this amazing event. After Jesus, you remember back in the end of chapter eight, after Jesus confronted and corrected Peter's attempt to sidetrack him from going to the cross, you remember Peter said, oh, this isn't gonna happen to you, Jesus. And of course, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You know, that's a fairly significant rebuke from Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is what was taking place here, the transfiguration right after that correction. He said that there would be those who witnessed the power and brilliance of the kingdom of God before they died. Well, here it is, six days later, the fulfillment of that prophecy. These three men, what is it? Peter, James and John, the, th- the three centerpieces to apostolic ministry witnessed exactly what Jesus said they would in verse one. And so this is where the transfiguration comes in. Peter, James, and John were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the kingdom of God and the power of a glorious Christ. Now, this demonstration of glory and power of Jesus was turned out to be a lifelong encouragement to these three apostles. We just heard it read from Peter's pen, how much it encouraged him This is is what kind of motivated his apostolic ministry. He referred back to this numerous times in his apostolic ministry. He was there on this great day when it took place. Never again would these three doubt the identity of Jesus. Never again would they question whether or not the sacrifices that they had made to join Jesus were worth it. Never again would they question the call on their lives that God had made. They had witnessed Jesus in in his kingdom glory. They had seen him transfigured from human to fully visible God in a moment. That might do something for you, wouldn't it? I mean, if you had experienced this, would your life change? I mean, we, we pray sometimes, oh, Lord, give me assurance of your will. Help me understand. How about this? God shows up in his brilliance and said, this is my will. Would that do it for you? This is what happened to these three apostles. Hence, their apostleship, hence their ongoing preaching about Jesus and him crucified. Prior to this experience, their relationship with God, like ours, was based 100% on faith, wasn't it? They, They had to believe. But after this, sight was added. They actually saw Christ in his glory. They saw the divine side of Jesus. They knew that he was God. No questions. Of course, the apostles would go on later, including the apostle Paul, to write of the glory of Jesus's divine radiance. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, we read of the Lord of glory, referring to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2.6, Paul refers to God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do you see the glory of God? In Jesus's face. And then Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And particularly, John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, from John's pen, the one who was there on that day, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. And then what was read early, I'm going to read again for you, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Peter speaking, another one of the three that were there, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't have to make up stuff, why? Because they saw it with their own eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter said. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, they heard, they saw, they heard God We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. What do we conclude? That Jesus is God in the flesh. That must be our conclusion. Next, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. We also learned this from this experience. Right at the peak of this experience of Jesus' radiant splendor, Moses and Elijah show up. What was that all about? Why these two guys? Why not Abraham? Why not David? Why not Isaiah? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, nothing is random in God's perspective, in God's view, in God's agenda. There was a reason. In Luke 9, we read that these three were speaking of Jesus's death. That's what they were talking about. Mark doesn't tell us that, but Luke does. Luke says they were speaking about Jesus's death. And the Greek word translated death, here in Luke chapter nine, was this, Exodus. Now follow me here. This is, I think, I love this kind of stuff, by the way. This impressed me. So the Greek word in Luke nine, verse 13, when they are speaking of Jesus's death, that word death, is actually the Greek word Exodus. Okay? Now, let me tell you why that's significant. And by the way, it must have been especially meaningful to Moses, uh, who, of course, is a type of Christ in that he led the people of God, the people of Israel, out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. Now, Jesus would lead the regenerated people of God out of the bondage of sin that we are currently in and we're in, in a new exodus from that bondage to sin and into the eternal promised land. This is in view here in this particular story. And how did this new Moses, the second, greater Moses, lead his people to the promised land? Through his death and resurrection. That's how. That's why this is significant. Jesus' death was... A very difficult thing for the disciples to grasp, but the transfiguration of Jesus was intended to prepare them and assure them that his death was a fundamental and necessary reason for his earthly messiah ministry. All right, they, they, they were starting to learn here, bit by bit. This was all part of God's grand plan to accomplish salvation for God's people. How? Through the death of the Messiah and his resurrection. So, again, why Moses and Elijah? I just told you about Moses. Moses was the giver of the law, right? Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. He was the protector of the law. Together, they represent all of the Old Testament and all the things concerning Christ and the prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. The law and the prophets make up the scripture in the Old Testament. So all the Old Testament, Mark is saying, Luke said, Matthew said, points to Jesus. And he is the culmination of all Old Testament-inspired scripture. You want to know what the point of the Old Testament is? It's Jesus. It's not stories about David and Goliath and all these things. Those stories point to Christ. All the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus himself said this in Luke 24, as well as other places. So Moses and Elijah were the perfect choice to be with Jesus during this transfiguration. There could not have been a more influential group of Old Testament characters persuade these three apostles that Jesus' death perfectly fulfilled God's purposes. These two were the heavy hitters in the Old Testament in the eyes of these three apostles. They understood, they embraced what was going on. Secondly, I want to show you Jesus' representation of God revealed. Uh, It really goes without explaining, but I want to explain it to you in case um, you're not seeing it clearly. But verses five through eight speak of Jesus' representation of God. 5 through 8, and Peter said, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was talking about because he was scared. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the vernacular, here's what this means. It's very theological. Listen closely. Zip it. Peter, zip it. Hey, <laughs> Pe- Peter, no. zip it. Listen to him. You're done talking, Peter. <laughs> this is a clear revelation, isn't it, <laughs> from God the Father? And by the way, this is the second time God the Father uh, confirmed the identity of Jesus, isn't it? When was the first? In his baptism. This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. said it again right here in Mark chapter 9. And what we what we learn from this little por- portion of the transfiguration story is that human perspective, our perspective is sometimes wrong. I would might even change that word sometimes to usually. Our perspective can be wrong as human beings. And we see this in Peter's demonstration and and God chose the right person to demonstrate this for us because he was typically boisterous Typically speaking, before he thought about what he was going to say, and he said what he said. He, he actually, listen to this, Peter actually interrupted the conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Hey, excuse me, i got something to say here. <laughs> you can picture it, right? He had good intentions, but he was way off. So, what did God the Father do? He interrupted Peter. And he said, zip it. I want you to listen to my son." Not only was Peter just running off his mouth in his shock at hearing God's voice, he was speaking his true heart. And and you say, well, how's that work? Well, we do it all the time. We're tired, we're hungry, we're disturbed, and we say things that later we come back and apologize for and say, I didn't mean that. Well, actually you did, right? You actually did mean that because you said it. And so this is the case here. Peter, Peter was just confused, shocked at what was happening in front of him, then hearing the voice out of this Shekinah glory cloud, which is, by the way, what they had in the wilderness. This is the cloud that they followed around in the wilderness, how God revealed himself to his people. It showed up again here at the transfiguration and enveloped Peter and the other two apostles. And in that cloud came this voice that said, Peter, be quiet. So, but he was speaking his true heart. And let me tell you what his true heart was. He says, let's build three tents. I mean, that makes no sense to us, right? But let me tell you what was on Peter's mind. He was hoping that Moses and Elijah would stick around a little bit and usher in the kingdom. Just like he had presented to Jesus six days earlier. Jesus isn't going to happen to you. We're going to go places, you and me. And here again, he's trying to subvert the agenda of God for his own purposes. And you can say all you want, Peter, that you didn't mean it. You meant it. You want the kingdom now. You want Israel reestablished as a world power. And you want to be on the cabinet. That's what was happening here. And God the Father says, Peter, be quiet. I want you to listen to my son. But Peter wanted to try one more time to get the kingdom up and running now. And so God the Father interrupted Peter's babbling and said what he said. So, I think there is some application here for us. I don't know about you, but I at times think I've got a better idea for God about His agenda, about my life, about our church's life, about your life. You know, trying to convince God that my idea is an improvement on His. Well, um, God doesn't really need my insight, He wants my relationship he wants communication from me he wants to hear my voice but he'd rather not hear my wisdom as deep as it is God has his plan for me for you for Peter for his kingdom established long before Adam and Eve breathed breathed one breath it was established there was no changing of God's agenda. And Peter certainly wasn't going to change God's mind on anything. And that's where we learn from this story that God's perspective is always right. And that's helpful to the apostles and I hope to you this morning that God's agenda revealed in scripture is always right. God's purpose for you revealed in scripture is always right. And you say, well, I don't know. Is God's will revealed in scripture for me? yes perfectly what's what's the purpose of God in your life to conform you to the image of his son that's his purpose that may take you through deep water that may take you through hard times that may take you through disappointment that may take you through all sorts of trial things that we think we have a better idea on hey God have you thought about this maybe no. God has his agenda set. Our job is to joyfully follow. That's what God wants from us. I want you to, to notice after God the Father in the cloud speaks to Peter and asks him to or tells him to be quiet and listen to his son, they were terrified and fell to the ground. Do you see that? in these verses, then what? What happens next after they fall to the ground? They get up and everything's, everyone has changed. Everybody, Moses, Elijah, gone, brilliance of Jesus, gone. Look at this verse eight, I think there's something for us in it. And suddenly looking around, they, that is the three apostles, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus, simple, human Jesus. What's there for us? Something that guided these three apostles for the rest of their ministry. Their ministry had to be, your life must be about simply Jesus, period. Does your theology take you places other than Christ Jesus? It ought not. (laughs) Your theology should always end at Christ Jesus. How about your life? Your your goals, your dreams, your family? Are you joining Christ in his agenda in all those areas? When, When everything settles, when the dust dies down... Can you see Jesus? That's what I see here. Friends, Jesus cannot be an addendum to our lives. He can't be that one that we run to when things are getting tight. We ought to run to him when things are getting tight, but we ought to always be with him, right? Not just when things are tight. Our busyness shouldn't distract us from Jesus. Our families shouldn't distract us from be- Jesus. Our hobbies shouldn't distract us from Jesus. When the dust settles, it ought to be Jesus. They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. You know, from this point on, with a few hiccups, which was Peter's denial of Jesus on the night he was arrested. By the way, that denial wasn't a point of confusion over the identity of Christ. That was established, that was never changing. He knew that Jesus was God the moment that he said, I don't know who he is. He didn't question the identity of Christ in the courtyard of Pilate ever. He simply got scared, like you and I do, at times but he never, he never questioned the identity of Christ after this moment on the mountain. From this point on, 11 of the 12 apostles devoted their lives to preaching Christ crucified. Whenever, they preached Christ, it was always Christ crucified. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was primary, was uppermost in their gospel presentation. And if the gospel ever comes out of our mouths and doesn't include his death, burial, and resurrection, we're not talking the gospel. You can talk all you want about how much Jesus made your life better, that's not the gospel. You can talk all you want about this or that or the other thing, that is an improvement because of Jesus, it's not the gospel. Your testimony isn't the gospel. My testimony, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's all they preached. So, why? Why this dramatic shift in understanding and, and focus in the lives of the apostles from this point forward. Well, they finally understood after this the centrality of the death of the Messiah. Up to this point, they thought the Messiah was going to come in and tear it up, right? Set things straight. Get Israel back into prominence. But from this point forward, after hearing Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talk about the agenda of God in the death of Christ they saw the scriptures in a whole new light they began to understand that everything written in the old testament was about a suffering messiah uh, look at look at these verses i'm going to well i'm going to wait it, hold on to that because it's i'm getting ahead of myself here it's really kind of exciting stuff so the old testament was starting to come into focus clear focus for these three guys, all the history that these three Jews had with the religious rites, the sacrificial systems, the priesthood, the bloody rituals, the prophets, the messianic psalms, all started to bring on a fresh, new, and exciting meaning. Oh, that was about a suffering savior. This lamb was a picture of Christ. Oh my goodness! This was the focus of every Old Testament scripture. And they finally got it. Here Jesus was in all his divine glory with Moses and Elijah speaking about the focal point of his entire mission. His death. His death. Jesus himself said in John 12, this is why I came. Can it get any more clear? These three guys finally got it. This was kind of like the cleanup hitter act in Jesus' ministry. And he parked it, to use the vernacular. Thirdly, let's get practical. Suffering, death, and resurrection are necessarily, necessary, necessary elements of the gospel. Suffering, death, and resurrection are necessary elements of the gospel. Verses nine through 13. And when they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one that what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen. And so they kept the matter to themselves, but they started talking about what this rising from the dead might mean. They weren't sure and they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That makes sense. They knew that it was prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah. I haven't seen Elijah around except here on the mountain here a couple seconds ago. Why? What's going on here? How is it written? The son of man should suffer many things. Look at verse 12. And here we go. Here's where I got ahead of myself. Verse 12, stunned the socks off these guys. Keep in mind they're Jews (laughs) and everything Jewish, All right? So verse 12, and Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And look at this addition here. And, and pay attention boys. And how it is written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He said, yes, it is prophesied that Elijah would come, and by the way, that I would suffer many things. This is a newsflash to these guys. This was almost as transformative as seeing Jesus in his glory a few moments earlier. Jesus said, the Old Testament's prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. Guys, how, how could you miss it? Have you read Psalm 22 lately, boys? How about Isaiah 53? You read that? Psalm 110? What did you think these things were about? And we read them today on this side of the cross and we say the same things. How'd you guys miss this? It's all over the place. But they did. This is what Jesus is saying. Uh, The cross is central to the Messiah's ministry. Without the cross, there is no Messianic ministry. So Jesus suffered, died, and rose. That's the gospel. So the transfiguration and all the divine power and brilliance that Jesus displayed and that these three disciples witnessed did not negate the necessity of the cross. It confirmed it. It confirmed it clearly. He was talking to Moses and Elisha about his death, his exodus. The cross has been part of God's plan before Adam and Eve sinned. Did you hear that? Before Adam and Eve sinned, before they were born, before they had one breath, the cross was part of God's plan. It wasn't a, oh no, they blew it, now what? That's not how it went. Remember, he is God before all time and after all. The cross of Christ is as glorious as the transfiguration. You remember how the Apostle John spoke of the cross of Christ throughout his entire gospel? He referred to it as the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is the cross. You want you want to know what makes God glorious? Now, this may shock you. Dying on a cross makes God glorious. According to God. (laughs) Man. So starting in Genesis 3.15, where the first promise of the gospel was given by God to Adam and Eve, and riddling the pages of the Old Testament, the Messiah has been prophesied to suffer, die for our salvation. Listen to what it says in Acts 3.18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. You know what the prophet's message was? That the Messiah would suffer and die for our sins. Thousands of years before the Messiah was born. There's no other way, friends, for your sins to be forgiven. There's no other way to get right with God. You must deal with a suffering, dying Messiah, Savior. There is nothing more glorious than the glorious transcendent God of the universe condescending into our lowliness by becoming one of us and experiencing the greatest bane of the human race, which is death. The, The God who cannot die Took on humanity so he could die, so he could take your place, so he could pay for your sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Now, who's going to pay that? You or Jesus? Jesus paid it for you. Have you embraced that Messiah, that Savior this morning? Or are you just giving the proverbial nod to Jesus, my Savior? Or have you embraced this God who condescended from such great heights into your world to represent you on Calvary? He did all of this to secure our forgiveness, our reconciliation, our restoration. It was no coincidence that when Jesus was being transfigured that Moses and Elijah appeared to discuss his death. In eternity past, God ordained that his own death for the sake of his people would be a glorious event. Earlier in the, in the service, Philippians chapter 2 was on the overhead. Did you read it? What, what a tremendous passage that is. Oh, my word. He he, Let me, I got to read it. I got to read it for you. Philippians chapter 2. If you have a uh, Bible in front of you, you may want to turn there. If not, maybe you know it by heart. Have this mind among yourselves. You ought to be like Jesus, in other words. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, that is Jesus, was in the form of God. Even though he was God. He did not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, him, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our God. That's the God of heaven who loves you, who loves me. And, of course, not only is his death a requirement for our salvation. not only is his death critical to the gospel, the resurrection is the necessary, attached, glorious element to the pinnacle of messianic ministry. For what is his death without erection? Without erection? Sorry. without resurrection It's been a long week. OK. Without the resurrection, friends, all is lost. All is for nothing. Paul makes a big point about this to the Corinthians. Without the resurrection of Christ, you and I are not saved. Do you realize that? If we just believe in a nice, good man, Jesus, and ignore the resurrection, you're lost. You don't know salvation, your sins are not forgiven. The resurrection is a requirement, a requirement for your salvation. So our salvation rests on these two inalienable events, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see here in this text that John the Baptist also suffered. Not only did Jesus suffer, die and rise from the dead, but John the Baptist suffered and died and is yet to be raised. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we read that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, that is indeed who Jesus was talking about. John the Baptist is the representation of Elijah. And we know what they did to John the Baptist, don't we? What did they do to John the Baptist? Jesus said they did whatever they wanted to to him. They tortured him, they killed him. He suffered, he suffered for the gospel. So I want you to see a a pattern here. The leader of our salvation, the leader of our religion, Jesus Christ himself suffered, died and was raised. The first fruits of many. John the Baptist who Jesus called the greatest in the kingdom, suffered and died. What does that mean for you? You follower of Christ, you? What does that mean for you? Well, I'm gonna avoid that suffering part. I'm gonna do my best not to participate in that part of the gospel. Well, (laughs) this leads us to our last point. All true disciples will suffer, die, and eventually rise. But all true disciples will suffer and die followed by an ultimate resurrection. Look at this verse, 1 Peter 2:21. For to you this is for to this, rather, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Are you in Christ? Are you a believer? Have you embraced this suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior? Then you can expect suffering as well. And death. And, listen, resurrection. If you suffer with him, then you certainly rise with him, Paul said in Romans 6. Listen to these in case you're not convinced. Acts 14:22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Through tribulations. Romans 8:17 If children, if you're going to be a child of God, if you're a child, then heir, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You call yourself a believer, you call yourself a Christ follower? Let's let's check that out. Have you suffered Are you suffering for the gospel? Or are you an incognito saint? Second Timothy 3.12, indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And here's a test for you. Go to work tomorrow and talk to somebody about Jesus see how that goes just a test you might come back to 2 Timothy 12 and go hmm, voila there it is or maybe not maybe the person has been ordained before time began to be converted to Christ by your message and either of those two things are great your suffering or their salvation <laughs> right both are awesome You remember when uh, Peter and John left the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 after being beaten because they were preaching Christ crucified? Do you remember what they said? They rejoiced in being worthy to suffer. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed with the greatness of your plan, the greatness of your person. We who are in your family have been truly convinced of your identity. We believe who you claim to be. We believe the miracles you use to confirm your identity. Um, We believe with Peter that you are the Christ, the God of heaven, the question remains for us in this room, does our life focus on you, Lord Jesus? Do those around us see you in us? Can Jesus be seen in us, in our lives? Have we made much of you, Lord Jesus? O oh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would in fact strengthen us for the task that you've called us to, the task that you called the apostles to, that of making much of Jesus, making much of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Lord, help us not to debate you and inform you of the direction life ought to go, but help us to submit joyfully, lovingly, faithfully to your will, to your agenda. God, do these things for our good. They are for our good, and we know it. We just resist the challenge. Help us not do that. Spirit, please, do your work in our hearts. Help us see Jesus daily. Help us to follow him faithfully and make much of him. Amen.